New Life Midtown, Christ is risen. guys did better than first service. Good, good. Well, guys, we are in Advent. We exited what is called ordinary time in the church calendar last night. Ordinary time does not mean boring time. Ordinary time simply comes from the word ordinal, which just means numbered. So there's almost 40 weeks that are numbered in ordinary time. And the goal is to focus on the life of Jesus Uh, his teaching, the disciples. That's kind of what we do in ordinary time. And then there are two seasons that we as a church celebrate, and that's the Christmas tide and the Easter tide. And so we are stepping into that Christmas tide Advent today. It starts today. And it's really important to say what Advent, what does it mean? And so Advent simply means coming or to come. It comes from a Latin word, Advent, Coming or to come, it just means that Jesus is coming to us and he is to come to us again. And we use this season um, to practice his return by observing uh, his first coming in the Gospels. So Advent is a time of preparation. And this is where we want to prepare our hearts uh, by being quiet and disciplining our hearts to celebrate Jesus throughout the whole Christmas tide. Now, um, when's the last time you heard somebody say, I really need to discipline my heart to celebrate? (laughs) Nobody's like, you know, I just really need to discipline my heart to celebrate my birthday. (laughs) Like, I just want to make sure I'm joyful, happy. I'm really going to discipline my heart to do this. Unless you do something like a birthday month, Um, which guys don't, but unless you do something like a birthday month, (laughs) you probably don't know what it means to discipline your heart. But I think something that uh, those of us who consider ourselves evangelicals or charismatics like myself or um, in, in our traditions like Pentecostalism, we sometimes forget to quiet and discipline to celebrate in these seasons. It's also important to say what Advent is not just channeling my inner Chris Green. What I'm not saying, (laughs) Advent is not prediction or speculation. It is not prediction nor speculation. Now, for the last 2,000 years, we, we do have a fascination around how and when Jesus will return. But if we follow the scriptures faithfully, we even hear Jesus himself saying, even the Son, me, I don't know when I'm coming back. So it seems like not the best use of time of the church to try and predict when the guy who doesn't know when himself he's coming back to predict his return. So we want to make sure that we are quieting and disciplining our hearts to be focused on the right things in our Christian walk. So today we're going to talk about two things. And the first thing that we are going to talk about is God is establishing his family. That's the first thing that we want to talk about. And the second thing that we're going to talk about is every sinner has a past, but through Jesus, every saint has a future. So every sinner has a past, but through Jesus, every saint has a future. And finally, just wrapping up our thoughts around Advent, Pope Francis said, everybody calm down. 
<laughs> Pope Francis had this great quote. It says, Advent invites us to a commitment to vigilance, looking beyond ourselves, expanding our mind and heart in order to open ourselves up to the needs of people, of brothers and sisters, and to the desire for a new world. Brothers and sisters around the world today are going to read two passages that we are going to read, and the first is out of Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 18. And this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to a people who have been carried away to Babylon. They've been taken away from their homeland. Their, their kings have been toppled, and they're grappling with how do we come back What's going on? We're confused. What do we do? And God speaks this word to these people. He says, watch for this. The time is coming, God's decree, when I will keep the promise I made to the families of Israel and Judah. When that time comes, I will make a fresh and true shoot sprout from the David tree or the David family tree. He will run this country honestly and fairly. He will set things right. That's when Judah will be secure and Jerusalem live in safety. The motto for the city, it's going to be, God has set things right for us. God has made it clear that there will always be a descendant of David ruling the people of Israel and that there will always be Levitical priests on hand to offer burnt offerings, present grain offerings, and carry on the sacrificial worship in my honor. This is a promise from God that an anointed one, a Messiah, will come and set things right for the Jewish people. And what our brothers and sisters also read today comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 27. And this is Jesus speaking, talking about his return. And he says, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when Jesus is telling people, how he is coming back. Uh, his intent is not for us to necessarily take these words literally. He's trying to communicate uh, almost in a poetic device of, I really want to expand your minds and your hearts of how I will return. And one of the ways that he does this is he uses the term son of man. And he gets this from Daniel the prophet. And Daniel the prophet had a vision that's recorded for us. And in that vision... Daniel sees a human being going into the courtroom of God. He's riding on a cloud, goes into the courtroom of God. And Daniel is very perplexed. He's so distraught over this vision because he can't make sense of it. I think it says, like, I laid in bed for days on end because I was so overcome by the idea of a human being standing in the presence of God. So Jesus loved to use this term saying, I am that human being. Yes, I'm fully God and I'm fully man, but that's where I'm headed and that is where I will return from. Now, um, if we read these two passages today 
And then I had Pastor Jonathan come up. He plays like a cool Christmas jazz medley as we did the doxology. We should work on that. That would be great. Um, (laughs) Jazz doxology. And so if we did that, and then I said, go declare the works of the Lord, and you left, you'd say, I kind of feel gypped on a sermon, number one. I was really hoping for a sermon. And two, um, what happened in between? What happened in between the promise Jesus is coming and Jesus promising he would return? How does the story work? And so what I would say is I want to kind of flip that question back on you and say, if you were sharing Jesus for the first time to somebody who is yet to know him, doesn't know him yet, how would you fill in the gap? How would you tell the story of Jesus? I'll let that sit for just a second, then we'll tell you how you do it. So some of us, we would start out with, we'd say something to the tune of, well, Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. And he walked the earth performing miracles. The first miracle that he performed was at the wedding at Cana of Galilee where he turned the water into wine. And some of you will go home and like pour water in your empty wine bottles, like, please, Lord, heal these wine bottles. And... (laughs) Yeah, I didn't go over great in the first service either. Um, It's worth a second shot. And so, uh, but he performed those miracles, and he continued to perform miracles, showing that he was God. And he had 12 disciples, and he taught them who he was and who he is. And then he was also sinless. And in his sinlessness, he was able to take on the sins of the world and And to do that, he had to be sacrificed. And the way that he was sacrificed was by the superpower Rome putting him on a cross. And he died taking on the sins of the world. But when he died and resurrected, he broke the power of sin and idolatry off of our lives. And that would be a great way to explain who Jesus is in the gap of this. And some of you, you get like really meta. You'd be like, let's take it all the way back. You give your like James Earl Jones, Darth Vader voice on. You'd be like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formed. And you're like, oh my gosh. Um, And you would say, and then we had first parents, Adam and Eve. and, And they were in perfect communion with God, but they sinned against him and broke that communion, and so God had to launch a rescue mission, and so he did it through the person of Jesus Christ, and he was, and then you just begin where we just left off, or where we picked up in the first example, and if you told the stories that way, you would tell them very much like Mark and John told their stories in their gospel, so it's a great way to do it, but there's another way to tell the story. And the way Matthew tells the story, begins telling the story of Jesus, is he starts with who Jesus is from. Now, and I think he has tapped into something here because we often, yeah, we may say, well, I am from this place, but we often talk about who shaped us in our lives to where we became who we are. We talk about our mothers and fathers, and we don't have mothers and fathers, those who raised us or didn't raise us or aunts and uncles. And so Matthew wants to tell you the story of Jesus 
through who brought us Jesus. Now, at this point, you see the twinkle in my eye. Getting a little shaky. You're like, oh my gosh, he's going to do it. You're right, I am going to do it. In line with my Enneagram fourness, we are going to read the genealogy of Jesus. So let's dig in. If you uh, please open your iBibles or your Androids or um, you know, any type of electronic Bible that you have. If you brought a printed Bible this morning, you get extra eternity points, guys. <laughs> you get to cash those in in eternity. So let's start reading. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to need you to interact with me just a little bit. It says, the family tree of Jesus Christ. Everybody say family tree. David's son, Abraham's son. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers. Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Everybody say Tamar. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Aram. Aram had Aminadab. Aminadab had Nashon. Nashon had Salmon. Salmon had Boaz. The mother was Rahab. Everybody say Rahab. Rahab. Boaz had Obed. Ruth was the mother. Everybody say Ruth. Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David, and David became king. David had Solomon, Uriah's wife was the mother. Everybody say Bathsheba, who wasn't mentioned. Solomon had Rehoboam, Rehoboam had Abijah, Abijah had Asa, Asa had Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat had Yoram, Yoram had Uzziah, Uzziah had Yotham, Yotham had Ahaz, Ahaz had Hezekiah, Hezekiah had Manasseh, Manasseh had Ammon, Ammon had Josiah, Josiah had Jehoiakim and his brothers, and then the people were taken into the Babylonian exile. When the Babylonian exile ended, Yelkaniah had Shealtiel, Shealtiel had Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel had Abiud, Abiud had Eliakim, Eliakim had Azor, Azor had Zadok, Zadok had Akim, not the one who came to America. Akim had Eliud, Eliud had Eleazar, Eleazar had Mathen, Mathen had Jacob, Jacob had Joseph, Mary's husband, the Mary who gave birth to Jesus, the Jesus who was called Christ, we would say the anointed one, There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, another 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and yet another 14 from the Babylonian exile to Christ. The very long word of the Lord. I can tell some of y'all are displeased with me. Um, So when Matthew begins telling the story of who Jesus comes from, he doesn't begin with Adam and Eve. And he doesn't begin with Noah. He doesn't even begin with Abraham's father, Terah. Instead, he begins with Abraham. And the reality is that if we were telling the story of where Jesus came from, Abraham is actually kind of problematic. See, Abraham was a pagan. And what a pagan means, he's an idolater, and he's a worshiper of other gods, and he's sacrificing to other gods, and he is living in what is now, what we would now consider modern-day Iraq. And he's living there, but God calls him and says, Abraham, you're very faithful. You're really good at being a pagan. Like, you do all the things. I'm just going to aim you in the right direction if you're willing and I will make you a father 
of many nations, and your children will carry my glory throughout the whole world. And so what God tells us is, he says, I want to establish a family to carry my glory throughout the world. Now, this is a sharp contrast to where God takes Abraham. So when God takes Abraham to the land of Canaan, where he's going to wander his whole life and not really get to say, this is mine, mine. It's promised to his children, not not to Abraham. So Abraham's job is to walk it and explore it. And so when God takes him there, he puts him right in the middle of more idolatry and more paganism. And I think it is to show Abraham there is going to be a contrast between how they live and how you will live and how you will help me establish this family. So the Canaanite gods are very much uh, like the other gods of other religions in the world. So you end up with uh, the Olympian gods, Zeus and Hera and Apollo, those guys. But since Marvel has made it so easy, uh, it's easier to think of gods like Odin and Thor and Frigga. And those, so these Canaanite gods are a lot like them. But different from God is that these gods don't create human beings in the image of themselves. Human beings are actually an accident, a byproduct of something else, and they actually could care less about them. And so the Canaanites, they tell stories of their gods, um, and I'll just throw a few names out, like El, his queen god wife, Asherah, and the one that we would be most familiar with, Baal. And so they tell stories of their adventures and bloodlust and fights and quarrels among themselves. And one of the stories, Bell, Bell gets into a fight with the ocean god and the river god. But Bell can't beat them, so there's this god who makes things, and he's like, well, let me make you two clubs to fight off the ocean and the river. So he makes them two clubs, and Bell beats back the ocean and the river. But the reality is, in skirmishes like this with these gods, really... The victims are human beings. And so these gods do not love, care for, or really even want involvement with these byproducts called, these accidents called human beings. But God reaches out to Abraham, says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And unlike those gods who are off on their silly adventures and quests because they have nothing better to do with their time, my adventure is establishing this family and being intimately involved with who you and we are becoming in this story. And so God makes him a promise. I'll make you a father of many nations, your descendants, like the stars. But Abraham doesn't get it right. Sarah, comes to him, Sarah his wife, comes to him and says, you know, this isn't coming to pass it's not working, so uh, why don't you take my slave girl, Hagar? Um, we'll make her like your concubine, sort of like a wife, but not quite. And we'll have a child through her, and we'll get this family going. We'll get this, this established. And so Abraham 
was out of his mind and said, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's do this. And so they do it, and they end up with Ishmael. And eventually God comes to him and says, like, Abraham, this is not the way that I wanted to establish a family. I did not tell you to do this. I told you that you and Sarah. And so there's a problem. Ishmael has to leave because he can't share space with now Isaac. And so um, Ishmael has to go, and we, we think that this is very unjust. This is a hard story to swallow. And I really encourage you, go back and listen to our Galatians series with Pastor Andrew when, uh, when he was here and talked about that issue. I think it will bring a lot of clarity. But, so Ishmael goes, and Isaac stays, and we would say, this doesn't seem fair. And God says, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to make my family tree to Jesus through Ishmael. I'm going to do it through Isaac. And so Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Esau's a jerk. But Jacob, Jacob, his very name is like trickster deceiver. And so he decides, you know, I want the most valuable thing uh, in my world. It's the first birthright. Esau has the first birthright. So let me, uh, let me work some magic and fool him out of it. And so he convinces Esau to trade his birthright. And we would say, yeah, you know, Isaac, or Esau's a, a jerk, but, I mean, that's not fair. That's not right. But God still honors that Jacob is now the firstborn. And this leads us to a very important point, is that we as Christians... Uh, it is not our responsibility to sanitize the scriptures. It is not our responsibility to make everything flowery. Um, it actually dilutes and diminishes the points that God wants to make to us about our Christian walk when we try to sanitize and gussy up or you know, make flowery these stories. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he wanted to make the Israelites more, uh, he wanted to make the Jewish people more attractive to the Romans, so he would pull out all the negative things of the histories that he would write. So when he talks about Rahab, who was a prostitute, he just leaves out the prostitute part. He's like, I don't want anybody to know this. We're going to clean it up a little bit. But when we sanitize the scriptures, we actually dilute what it is that God wants to communicate to us. And we don't need to be uncomfortable um, with these realities. And so Jacob has 12 sons. One of them's Judah. One of them's Joseph. Most of the brothers don't like Joseph, so they're like, let's kill him. Wait, it's a little much. So let's just sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery, and Joseph goes down to Egypt, and Joseph saves the known world at that time. But the other brother, Judah, he's not a great guy either. He's kind of following in the steps of Jacob. And so he has three sons. And the first son marries a woman named Tamar. And that son dies. And then, you know, as Jonathan explained in our series on Ruth, there's this idea of the kinsman redeemer. And they believe that this was the right thing to do in the will of God. And so um, the second son steps up to be the kinsman redeemer, but he dies. And so... Judah's like, 
I can't have a third son die. So I'm going to play a little game. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of push Tamar off and say, oh, when the youngest son's ready, you know, let's give this some time. And so Tamar is pushed off for quite a while. And finally she gets an idea, and it's not the idea that we would pick. <laughs> so she waits until Judah goes down to shear the sheep, shear his sheep with his sheep shears. Try and say that ten times fast. And while he's shearing, sh- shearing sheep, <laughs> he looks over and he sees this prostitute, but he doesn't know it's Tamar. And so he goes over to uh, Tamar, the pros- dressed as a prostitute, and he says, uh, how much? And so she says, how much? And he's like, okay, I don't have it on me. What will you take as a pledge? And she says, okay, well, give me your staff and a couple of other things. And this would be like somebody saying, okay, you can't pay me now. Would you hand me your passport, driver's license, and social security card? Like, if you'll hand those to me and then you can come back tomorrow and pay because I know you want these back. And so services were rendered. Judah went away, comes back the next day with the money, and he's, he's talking to his sheep shearers, and he asks, where's the prostitute? And they're like, what prostitute? It's like, oh, it's awkward. She has, she, has my, she has my driver's license, passport, and social security card. Well, some time goes by, and Tamara's pregnant, and Judah's like, yes, got her. Now I can be fully done with her. And, you know, he made the normal reaction, you know, the, the best way to solve this is to burn her because that's what we all think when we talk about solving problems. And so he's like, well, you know, you did the things. And she's like, well, the guy that I'm pregnant by, um, these are his things, passport, social security card, driver's license. And Judah says, you have been more righteous than I. And we don't like the methods but Tamar was seeking justice, and that's how she sought justice. So at this point, some of you are connecting the dots and saying, Aaron, um, why does Jesus' family tree begin with a bunch of jokers? Like, there's a guy who's serving other gods. Um, there's a guy who's tricking his brother out of the birthright. There, there's another guy who won't do right by his daughter-in-law. Um, this is not how I would write the story. Like If I were writing the story, it would be like, Jesus came from this long line of politically well-connected people living in Washington, D.C., and, you know, white picket fences, 2.3 kids, little dog named Sparky. Everybody loves Sparky. Like, that's how we would want to tell the story, but God wants to tell us something that's much deeper and richer than anything that we would ever write. What God wants to show us is, I don't move history along and I don't show my love to people based on human merit. It's not what you can do, how good you can be, has nothing to do with that. I am going to move this family tree along by showing my great love and mercy for my image that has fallen away from me. And I think this is what makes Jesus so well prepared 
to minister to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes is because he's ministering to people. They're the people who he came from. And so he is, he is well equipped to minister to people who are from his family tree. Now, some of us, we would get a little hung up and say, but what about Joseph? Like, the family line should come through him. He's the good guy. Like, this would make such a better story. Like, why does he get left out? Guys, Joseph doesn't get left out. Like, let's not get distracted by the family tree to forget that God still honors the people who are faithfully seeking and serving him. The guy made it into the Bible. Like, he saves the whole known world. And he does the right thing. He does the righteous thing. He just, in God's choice, isn't part of the family tree in that sense. He's like a great, 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 great uncle or something. So God wants to show his great love. So we go from... God promising Abraham the land to the monarchy, King David. And Matthew really wanted to emphasize this. And so we get to go from a promise of the land to a seeming solidifying of the land. We finally have it. We are a monarchy. We are a kingdom. And this is proof that God loves us. And we are validated now as a superpower. But the monarchy was not God's intention for the people of Israel. In fact, he's like, don't do this. And the people are like, no, we really want this. And he's like, don't do this. Like, but we really want a king. And finally, God relents and says, fine, I'll give you the thing that you want that you shouldn't want. And he gives it to them. And for Matthew, when he writes this, it seems like we go from Abraham to the king to exile. Everything's a downward slope from the monarchy. And so we have David in the, in the Jewish Bible. The, book of, the books of Samuel are one book. So there's no first and second. It's just Samuel. And David's story um, is... For instance, if there were 10 chapters to David's story, those 10 chapters are broken half at the fifth chapter. And that fifth chapter is his sin with Bathsheba. And so we have David going up, everything's great, sin with Bathsheba never recovers. And this begins the downward slide of Israel's exile to Babylon. And Solomon, Solomon doesn't do that great either, guys. Like we read and we're like, oh, the wisdom of Solomon. It's like he had a dream, he met God, he asked for wisdom. But the reality is, is that he used most of that wisdom almost immediately for his own selfish purposes. And one of the ways he does it is by breaking the law, the Torah. There's, there's an excerpt from the Torah that says, do not get chariots. And Solomon's like, I want a chariot. I want a souped-up chariot, want more horsepower, pun intended, one more horsepower, give me the chariots. And so immediately he is using what God has given him for his own selfish ends. And then we end up in Babylon. So we, we move from uh, the patriarchs, the, the larger-than-life guys of the family tree, and then we get to the power of the family tree, the monarchy. 
But then when we get back from Babylon, we end up with a third type of people that are in our family tree. And I call that the nobodies. Okay, who's ever heard of Shealtiel? Anybody? Anybody heard of Shealtiel? I haven't heard of Shealtiel. I've read no stories about these guys where it's like mighty hand, outstretched arm, put to flight a bunch of people, took the jawbone of a donkey, beat some people up. No, there's no stories about these guys. They're just people like you and me. I dare say nobodies. I know some of you are history makers, but we'll address that later. And so... (laughs) They're just nobodies like you and me, but God counts them worthy to move along the family tree of Jesus Christ. And finally, we arrive at our last group of people, our fourth group of people. Uh, Last month, or last four weeks, we did a series on Ruth, and we called it The Outsider, and these are the outsiders. You remember I had you say Tamar and Rahab and Ruth's uh, names as we worked our way through the genealogy. You have Rahab who, she is a Canaanite. So nobody nobody in Israel wants anything to do with a Canaanite because they worship these other gods that I just told you about, El, Asherah, and Baal. On top of it, she's a prostitute, which means she's probably engaged in in what is called temple uh, sex acts, temple worship acts. So she helps people worship El and Asherah and Bel through the violation of her body. But she believes God more than the Israelites believe God. So you know, you know the story where the 40 years earlier, the spies go into the land and, and they walk all through it and they come back and they're like, yeah, it's great. Like it's everything we could ever want. Pool's in the right place, open kitchen. It's great. We really want to move in. But, you know, there's a lot of warriors. We're going to say that they're giants. We exaggerate so much. We can't take it. Um, So I don't know what we're going to do. And you got Joshua and Caleb chomping at the bit like, no, no, send us now. We can do it. And God's like, no, it's going to take 40 years before we get there. And so that generation dies off. And by the time the Israelites do get to where Rahab lives, a place called Jericho, a walled city, she says things like, we know that your God has given you this land. We know that he will fulfill what he has promised to you. She has more faith than those other Israelites. So the walls fall and... Rahab marries an Israelite. I think his name's Salmon. Salmon, Salmon, I think that's his name. And who is her son? Anybody? Boaz is her son. And Jonathan just finished up an amazing series on Ruth and made some really great points about how, you know, Ruth is the outsider. She is a Moabitess, a lot like a Canaanite, just a little different. Worshiping other gods comes back. And and Boaz shows this great hospitality and graciousness and, and eventually marries Ruth. And I wonder how much of that is influenced, how his faith is influenced by his mother, who is a Canaanite who is redeemed. He says, I'm going to live the way that 
that my mother lived with great faith in God. And you know, I'm, I'm, this is pure conjecture, so this is not biblical, but in my mind, I imagine that Boaz is somebody who grows up where people will say, yeah, you know, Rahab, she hid the spies and she helped us take the, the land of Canaan, etc., etc." But there's always that one person who's like, but you know she is a prostitute. And growing up with hearing both things, and it's just not beneficial. So Boaz purposes to be someone who's different. So we fast forward to Mary. And Mary is somebody who finds herself as an outsider because of her precarious position. She's pregnant. And she's not supposed to be pregnant. And so the Lord uh, rescues through a kinsman redeemer, Joseph. And so we find ourselves at this point where God is is bringing us Jesus through this family tree of larger-than-life grandparents, uh, powerful political leaders, absolute nobodies, and the outsider. So before we come to the table, I want to close with our two points from earlier in that, one, God is establishing a family. See, the reality is is that God calls and establishes a family and sticks with them intimately despite their great failure and dysfunction. Guys, everybody who read about was dysfunctional to some degree, to some degree. But God shows his great mercy in that he is willing to redeem, to bring about Jesus. And he uses this uh, family tree of dysfunction to preserve, proclaim, and convey the salvation of the one who is coming to us. See, God wrote the story of Jesus' family tree with crooked lines. And the family tree itself, my gosh, it's crooked, it's gnarled, it's funky. It's probably been struck by lightning, set on fire. This is a lot going on with this family tree. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is born through all these individuals, these types of people. And God started out the family tree with a nuclear family. What I mean by that, mom, dad, child. But Jesus expands the family tree in something he calls the body of Christ. See, he calls the 12 disciples and the apostle Paul and and then they called somebody, Paul called Timothy and a bunch of others and they kept calling and they kept calling through history till eventually we were called. And this is how God expands the family tree. See, the family tree doesn't end with Jesus. It just gets redefined into the body of Christ where we're full of all kinds of brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. So the story gets bigger for each and every one of us. And then finally, every sinner has a past, but through Jesus, every saint has a future. We see in Scripture that people like Abraham and Jacob and Judah 
Ruth, all these figures, uh, the failed kings, the nobodies, the outsiders, they're all sinners with stories written with crooked lines. Yet God gives them a future and makes them important and integral to the family tree. He gives them a chance to get it right. Judah, for all of his failures, finally gets it right and uh, takes the place of his brother Benjamin. Instead of giving him up like he tried to do with everybody else, he finally takes the place of Benjamin. Rahab starts out as a probably a good Canaanite, and she gets it right, trusting in God. But God also demonstrates that in their brokenness, he will still cause Jesus to come to us. We see Peter and the disciples. Paul is a murderer before he's radically called. And many other sinners in the New Testament. Peter can't get it right. But God continues to work through each and every one of them. And... I really want us to hear this. God works through many other sinners just like us, just like us. See, we're all sinners, but through Jesus, we all become saints. First Peter says that we are a holy people, a royal priesthood, that we will carry forth the glory of God to the uttermost bounds of the earth. We start here in our neighborhoods, in our county, in our state, but we carry the glory of God despite whatever our past might be. And because we are saints who still have stories written with crooked lines, but through Jesus, he gives us a future to preserve, proclaim, and convey that he who will come to us will come to us again. Just because your story is written with crooked lines and you are a nobody, an outcast, listen real close, does not mean your life is insignificant or unimportant. You are important because you are part of the family tree of Jesus Christ. You are in good company. Let's prepare to come to the table. If you will, let's stand. If you would, exit to your left, left of your row, and come and collect the elements. seats and fiddling with our communion cups. I wrestled with how to tell this part of the story as I was working through this message. The genealogy really started to resonate with me. Um, 
grew up with my uncles and spent a lot of time with them and it's where I learned to fish and be out in the woods and you know get lost things like that and um, grew up in Oklahoma with them you're like oh Oklahoma say no more we got it um, and growing up with them and being around them a lot um, you, they, they were kind of crazy um, and like kind of I mean crazy like um, you know just dealing with some different mental health issues and alcoholism and there's a few instances where I was a victim of, of their struggles with those things um, but I picked up a lot of stories that I just thought were really funny so I'd tell them every once in a while and and um, remember one time I told Sam Loving a story I'd never told anybody I was like Sam I've never told anybody this story he looks at me and goes you can't tell anyone that story <laughs> and uh, so I just you know you live in it and so you think things are funny and so um, it's only until recently I think I've started to realize oh maybe I'm the only one that thinks these stories are funny freaking people out. Um, so several years ago, um, I dated a girl and it didn't work out. She ended it, didn't feel right about it. And that's fine. If you don't feel right about something, you shouldn't keep pressing on and through it. And so a few years went by and we dated again. And um, we're dating and she ended it again. I was like, you know, we've dated a second time, you didn't feel right about it the first time. I think I need a little, just a little bit more closure around this. And and when you're meeting people, you, um, or getting to know people, you share who you are from. So I would tell these stories about my uncles and things like that. She said, Aaron, you're just from the wrong side of the tracks. Now, I don't say this because I need vindication or anything like that, but working through this, this message, um, because when she said that, it created a wound, and it stuck with me for a long time. Like, I'm from the wrong side of the tracks. What? I can't fix my tracks. Um, maybe be like Judah, let's burn them. Um, But reading this brought a lot of healing, not vindication, nothing like that, but healing around alongside of the tracks. I'm in good company. I'm exactly who I should be from. And that's okay. And some of you may be wrestling with things from your family and your past. I just want to say, God uses dysfunction to bring us Jesus. And he uses dysfunction to bring us us. And he gives us a family that's still full of dysfunction. And I'm happy to be dysfunctional with you. So um, so on the night that Jesus was betrayed by people just like us, he said, take, eat this bread broken for you. It is my body. Let's take and eat. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for your redemption. Do this as often as you can. 
to take and drink. Jonathan, if you would lead us in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father.